How did the institutions of international financial order come to be instruments in service of U.S. imperial interests? What was the connection between U.S. military adventures in the post-World War II period and the shifting of balance of payment settlements away from gold toward U.S. Treasury debt? What are the fundamental reasons why China's economic development is prospering while America's is collapsing? How were Canadian governments persuaded to arrange loans from German and Swiss banks rather than from their own Bank of Canada for project spending? What are the forces preventing a left-of-center candidate like Bernie Sanders from attaining the Democratic nomination for President of the United States? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we showcase the ideas of financial economist, historian, and author Michael Hudson on the world financial order with an emphasis on the rise of China and the decline of the U.S. from an interview conducted in July of 2019. In this exclusive interview, Dr. Hudson explains how the Bretton Woods institutions came to be an instrument of the U.S. empire, the similarities and differences behind the paths to Chinese and U.S. economic prosperity, the virtual impossibility of electing a genuine reformer to the White House, the case of Canada, and more. On this week's program, a history of U.S. economic warfare from World War II to the present, a conversation with Michael Hudson. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 15, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Thinking about extracting and producing lithium for the needs of the people and in respect for the environment outside of speculative ambitions is an attack at heart of globalized capitalist economy. This is the reason why a freely elected president who enjoys the granite consensus of the popular masses of Bolivia should be ousted and forced to resign and flee the country. It becomes also clear which is the main enemy of the self-determination of peoples. In Bolivia, there is not a song much different from the one played by the United States, NATO, and the European Union in Syria, trying to break up an oil-producing country in order to throw it into easy hands to run. Italian main press agency ANSA reported a few days ago that an order of capture was allegedly issued against Evo Morales. The source were statements of Mr. Camacho, who is none other than the leader of that opposition which challenged without substantiated reason the president's legitimate election. That comes from the article, The Strategic Battle for Lithium, Huge Reserves in Bolivia, Argentina, Chile, by Enzo Pellegrin, posted November 14th. 
Since late 2001, the United States has appropriated and is obligated to spend an estimated $6.4 trillion through fiscal year 2020 in budgetary costs related to and caused by the post-9-11 wars, an estimated $5.4 trillion in appropriations and current dollars, and an additional minimum of $1 trillion for U.S. obligations to care for the veterans of these wars through the next several decades. The mission of the post-9-11 wars, as originally defined, was to defend the United States against future terrorist threats from al-Qaeda and affiliated organizations. Since 2001, the wars have expanded from the fighting in Afghanistan to wars and smaller operations elsewhere in more than 80 countries, becoming a truly global war on terror. Further, the Department of Homeland Security was created in part to coordinate the defense of the homeland against terrorist attacks. These wars and the domestic counter-terror mobilization have entailed significant expenses paid for by deficit spending. That comes from the article... The Costs of Post-9-11 Wars, $6.4 trillion, by Professor Neta C. Crawford, posted November 14th, originally published at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. The Eastern Mediterranean remains a strategic point for trade due to its proximity to the Suez Canal, transportation, and more recently, natural resources. It is this very drive for exploiting the natural resources that in January, the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum was convened as a means for Cyprus, Egypt, Greece, Jordan, Israel, Italy, and the Palestinian Authority to develop a regional natural gas market. Notably, Turkey was missing from this forum, which would have agitated Ankara as only a month later, ExxonMobil announced a new gas discovery in offshore Cyprus that has more than doubled Cyprus's estimated offshore resources. This is why Turkey has been in a desperate rush to exploit oil belonging to another internationally recognized sovereign country. It is for this reason that on Monday, on Nicosia's request last month, the EU Council of Foreign Affairs adopted sanctions including travel bans and freezing assets of individuals and entities involved in Turkey's illegal drilling, Cypriot Natural Resources. That comes from the article, Can the EU's new sanctions against Turkey force the Cyprus issue to finally be resolved? By Paul Antonopoulos, posted November 14th, originally published on Infobricks. Medea Benjamin, co-founder of anti-war group Code Pink, said she was assaulted Wednesday by supporters of the right-wing Venezuelan opposition during a Capitol Hill press conference announcing the creation of the bipartisan Congressional Venezuela Democracy Caucus. Medea Benjamin is a frequent contributor to Global Research. Benjamin and other members of Code Pink protested the event while backers of the effort to overthrow Venezuela's elected president, Nicolas Maduro, rallied in support of the new pro-regime change caucus, which was launched by Representatives Debbie Wasserman Schultz, a Democrat from Florida, Mario Diaz-Balart, Republican from Florida, and other lawmakers. During the press conference, Benjamin shouted for an end to punishing U.S. sanctions in Venezuela and held a sign that read, No coups in Venezuela or Bolivia. That comes from the article, They choked me, they threw me down. Code Pink's Medea Benjamin assaulted by right-wing Venezuelan opposition and threatened with arrest. By Jake Johnson, post-November 14th, originally published at Common Dreams. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. When the public thinks of empire, it is not unusual to think in terms of wars of conquest and military might. However, one of the most effective means by which an imperial power maintains its control and dominance is through financial instruments. The money supply and the ability to borrow and lend are significant determinants in the true autonomy of a nation. In his 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, financial economist Michael Hudson outlines how the U.S. subdued and exploited foreign economies not just through the force of arms, but by entities like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. In July of 2019, Dr. Hudson brought an audience in Winnipeg, Canada, up to date with a lecture based on his latest paper, U.S. Economic Warfare and Likely Foreign Defenses, in which he discloses the strategies underlying U.S. economic warfare, the looming self-destruction of the U.S. as a world power, and ways rival powers like China could defend themselves in the wake of the empire's implosion. Michael Hudson gave this talk at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg as part of the 14th Forum of the World Association for Political Economy, this annual event represents a gathering of Marxist economists from around the globe and aims to utilize current understandings on the subject to analyze and study the world economy, reveal its laws of development, and offer policies to promote economic and social progress on national and global levels. Michael Hudson is a prominent U.S. critical economist and president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, Dr. Hudson has acted as an economic advisor to governments worldwide, including Iceland, China, Latvia, and Canada. Dr. Hudson's other books include Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Destroy the Global Economy from 2015, and J is for Junk Economics, A Guide to Reality, in an Age of Deception from 2017. In an exclusive, wide-ranging interview with Global Research NewsHour, Professor Hudson explains how the Bretton Woods institutions came to be an instrument of the U.S. empire, the similarities and differences behind the paths to Chinese and U.S. economic prosperity, the virtual impossibility of electing a genuine reformer to the White House, the case of Canada, and more. We'll present that interview shortly. We start, however, with an excerpt from his speech in Winnipeg. Here's Dr. Hudson introducing some of the tools and weapons used by the U.S. to maintain and secure its power following the Second World War. At the time America uh, emerged from uh, World War II, uh, it had by far most of the uh, gold supply of the world. And at that time, uh, the uh, domestic money uh, created by central banks was based uh, on gold. Uh, the United States uh, had such a dominant position that by the time the, Viet uh, the uh, Korean War broke out in 1950, the United States had accumulated 75% uh, of the world. Uh, gold supply. Uh, 
This meant that other countries uh, were facing austerity. Uh, the Americans expected, quite correctly, that uh, as a result there was going to be rising uh, social revolution uh, in these countries. So uh, they, be, they uh, the American free market planners realized uh, the, the first premise of free market economic theory. I don't know why this is left out of the premise, out of the textbooks that they teach. The first premise is you cannot have a free market unless you're willing to assassinate everyone who opposes you, unless you can uh, uh, have a regime change for any country that does not follow a free market. All of Roman history is this, the 5th, 4th, 3rd, 1st century BC. Every single advocate of debt cancellation, of uh, land redistribution, of democracy uh, was, was killed. Uh, the United States immediately set up a regime change in Guatemala, overthrowing uh, the government, that uh, Arben's government that wanted land reform. Uh, and it uh, came in in support of uh, British Petroleum in, uh, or, uh, in uh, Iran and overthrew the elected Mossadegh regime. Uh, and it's, it uh, installed uh, dictators throughout Latin America long before... Uh, you had Paris Jimenez in Venezuela, you had everyone there. Uh, Kissinger was very open uh, in uh, backing Pinochet uh, in Chile, saying uh, if you have uh, a, an opponent of uh, uh, free markets, meaning well, free market means uh, American-dominated. You're, you're free to buy anything you want in the United States, but you have to buy it. Whatever you buy, it's in the United States. Uh, he, he said, uh, we, we have to kill not only the leader, but the entire class. And the result was a, uh, a huge 10-year uh, war throughout all of Latin America, of political assassinations of labor leaders, of uh, 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 so, uh, socialists, of academics, of professors, uh, a, a mass of terrorism. And it was really uh, in the 1970s that America emerged as the leading terrorist uh, country uh, in the world, backing its concept of free markets and democracy. Uh, by democracy, it meant pro-American. Any regime, including the uh, Ukrainian Nazis, that uh, are uh, pro-American are called a democracy. Uh, any country, no matter uh, whether they, they elect their leaders or not, uh, is called anti-democratic or totalitarian, meaning uh, other than uh, the United States. So the problem is, uh, wh where can we go from here? Well. The problem with finance capitalism is finance is extractive. Uh, leveraged buyouts, stock uh, buybacks. Uh, finance is short term. Uh, banks uh, look at something, how much can we collect? And it's, uh, banks don't lend in terms of what can our loan create in productive capacity to uh, earn the profits to pay. They say, what, uh, uh, if we make a loan, where is the property that we can grab when uh, th there is a default. Uh, the aim of creditors throughout history has not been primarily to earn interest. It's not to earn interest. It's to foreclose and get the property of the debtors that cannot pay the interest. This is essentially the IMF's policy 
uh, in a nutshell. Uh, it will it is make loans uh, to uh, countries uh, as long as they're in the U.S. orbit. Uh, it will not make loans it, uh, loans to countries uh, opposing the U.S. And it, it makes loans in conjunction with World Bank plans that uh, cannot be paid. And when when there is a balance of payments crisis of uh, countries, uh, IMS clients, uh, they, they're told you ha you can pay us by selling off your property, by privatizing your property, privatizing your mineral resources, privatizing your public utilities and uh, your natural monopolies, especially your electric companies, your water companies, uh, your oil reserves. Uh, this is uh, this is uh, the game, and the IMF essentially is uh, the kneecapper, as we say in America. They it's the uh, uh, the gangster for uh, the American objective of buying out uh, control of other countries. You've pointed out that the um, it, the, the these institutions of um, international. Uh, financial order, the Bretton Woods institutions, uh, IMF, uh, World Bank, there, there was a, a ostensibly conceived to uh, promote uh, a more peaceful world order, but they've turned into uh, instruments of uh, uh, you know, extending U.S. nationalism, predatory rent extraction, and an increased militarism. So I I guess I'm wanting to get some sense from you. What were the key ingredients that, that led in that direction? I mean, were the, the seeds always planted for, for that development, or, or were there key moments where we've seen that transition to this you know, very much more asymmetric uh, um, dynamic? Well, every country and every class always represents its own interest as being that of civilization. Rome described uh, the conquest of its empire as uh, extending civilization. Uh, America does the same. Uh, in the case of the World Bank, uh, the United States uh, created a system where uh, it would uh, only make loans in uh, dollars in foreign currency, not domestic currency, uh, to countries. Uh, and instead of helping uh, finance their development, it only would finance their dependency uh, to uh, create, for instance, their land was to be used to grow export crops uh, competing with each other, crops that could not be grown in uh, America's latitude, but tropical crops. Uh, they were not to grow grain or wheat or soybeans or anything that would uh, compete with the uh, uh, American uh, agricultural exports because uh, agriculture has always been uh, the bulwark of America's uh, trade balance, uh, much more than uh, industry. Uh, the World Bank also, instead of develop, uh, making loans to develop transportation infrastructure for uh, what you'd normally see with uh, city urbanization, domestic use, and uh, urban development, uh, financed transportation almost exclusively uh, to help the mining interests and the extractive interests, the raw materials materials interest, uh, the World Bank would provide uh, infrastructure to lower the cost to multinational corporations involved in mining, minerals, oil, uh, and gas. So basically, it was all to support uh, American investment abroad from the beginning. Uh, the International Monetary Fund was the same. The guiding philosophy of the uh, International Monetary Fund is all uh, we, they would make uh, loans only uh, to support a currency uh, in trouble. Uh, in trouble means uh, 
when a currency was about to collapse in Latin America or elsewhere, uh, the International Monetary Fund would help the oligarchs, the local wealthy people, transfer their money out of the local currency, pesos or escudos, uh, out of the country at a supported so high exchange rate for the dollar, then they would let the uh, exchange rate fall uh, and uh, the country would be left with debt. Uh, and the guiding philosophy of the International Monetary Fund was any country can pay any volume of debt without limit as long as it can impoverish the labor force by reducing wages and imposing austerity. So the IMF... Uh, uh, promoted American prosperity uh, and uh, create at the cost of austerity, uh, falling living standards, uh, falling uh, pub uh, public investments uh, in its client countries. That's why when 2008 occurred, by that time, uh, the last IMF client, Turkey, I think, had repaid uh, its foreign debt, and other countries said, we never want the IMF in our country again. Uh, because the IMF would uh, do what it called stabilization programs. These were really destabilization programs. They would say, uh, the country can pay the debt. Uh, uh, you've, you've already impoverished your workers uh, to such a low level that uh, you're in a depression. Uh, there's no internal market. You have to pay your debts by privatizing your uh, uh, public infrastructure. You have to sell off uh, all of the natural monopolies that every country for hundreds of years has kept in the public domain. Not only the uh, uh, mineral rights and oil rights uh, that were in the public domain, but the transportation system, the electrical system especially, uh, the ports, the airports, uh, everything that was public should be sold to pay uh, back the IMF to uh, for the subsidy of the capital flight by the uh uh, by the wealthy. And uh, the, the, most of this capital flight uh, was uh, into uh, offshore banking enclaves that were set up by the U.S. government uh, around uh, after 1964, uh, when the Vietnam War was causing uh, extreme balance of payments crisis. I was at the Chase Manhattan Bank at that time, and uh, a State Department person came to me and said, uh, we're the entire deficit of the Vietnam War is military. We have a problem. How are we going to pay for our military uh, uh, f deficit all over the rest of the world? 800 military bases. They said there's one liquid uh, supply of capital throughout the world. There's one class that has a higher savings rate than any other class, and that class is the criminal class. The drug dealers, uh, organized crime, uh, uh, tax evaders, uh, and corrupt government officials. And so uh, they decided, they said, uh, what we will do is create uh, offshore uh, banking enclaves, uh, very much like Panama and Liberia, uh, for the oil sector, which had already set up, but we're going to set them up throughout the Caribbean. Uh, England did the same thing. So America uh, established Caribbean islands with no taxation, no question to ask, little Panamas, little uh, Liberias. And uh, in, in uh, England's case, uh, you had uh, the uh, British... Uh, uh, Caribbean islands declare independence and then they reverse their independence so they could be part of the English area and so that they would be using sterling and uh, be uh, exempt from any 
uh, foreign uh, exchange, uh, any currency uh, devaluation. So very quickly, uh, the American banks uh, and the British banks established branches in these islands that uh, were very poor islands. And uh, all of a sudden, you had all these huge bank uh, branches there. And uh, so brokerage firms uh, came to me and asked me to compute statistics. And we would look at the, uh, you can look at the United States government for, uh, and bank foreign liabilities uh, to like Anguilla, uh, all of the other offshore banking uh, uh, enterprises. And uh, foreign liabilities means these are the deposits uh, we have there. And uh, you would have foreign liabilities to their own bank. So uh, the criminals, the drug dealers, uh, the cocaine cartel, uh, all sorts of and tax uh, uh, dictators uh, would put their money in the islands, in the banks. The island bra branches of the New York banks uh, would then take this money and lend it to the head office. Uh, and this money was exempt from reserve requirements because it was foreign, uh, and so it was very, a source of very inexpensive capital uh, to the American bank. So it was really the United States that organized uh, the world's capital flight, offshore banking centers, uh, and the IMS role was to support uh, the dollar, to support the currency, and to support capital flight from other countries uh, into the U.S. dollar. So uh, this was not really international at all. Uh, the World Bank, uh, uh, some years, I think on its 50th anniversary, uh, called its uh, an, uh, a book celebrating its success, Partners in Development. Uh, and it was actually should have been called Partners in Backwardness, because the effect was to underdevelop countries, to uh, unbalance them, to make them export enclaves, uh, while the IMF's role was to keep down uh, the price of labor and uh, essentially carve up uh, the public domain and uh, privatize it and do to Latin America, Africa, and the Near East what Margaret Thatcher had done to England. Now, you, you mentioned the you know, developments that springing from uh, in 1964, the Vietnam War, and it occurs to me that it was only a few years into that war that you start to see that the gold standard has been exchanged for U.S. Treasury debt. C could you comment a little bit more on that, that decision and, and maybe the timing of the decision and, and its impacts? Well, in the years from uh, World War II up to 1950, when the Korean War was breaking out, uh, the United States increased its supply of the world's gold to 75%, uh, it, by far the largest uh, holder of official intergovernmental gold. Uh, when the uh, war in Korea began, uh, that started uh, a long generation uh, of uh, deficits uh, in the United States balance of payments. For in, in the 1950s and the 1960s, I have the charts in my book, Super Imperialism. The private sector was just exactly in balance uh, for the United States in the 1950s and 60s. The entire balance of payments deficit of the United States was uh, from military spending abroad. Uh, not only the war in Vietnam, but uh, the spreading to other countries, uh, the basis we had all over, uh, the political uh, uh, bribery and uh, influence over uh, foreign countries. So uh, it used to be, uh, in the, by the mid-60s, uh, again, when I was Chase Manhattan Bank's balance of payments economist, every Friday the Federal Reserve uh, would publish 
the papers would publish uh, the U.S. gold holdings and the currency. And we would, uh, at that time, every physical U.S. dollar, uh, the paper uh, money, had to be backed 25% by gold. And we would see uh, week by week as uh, General de Gaulle, but also Germany, uh, without being so vociferous, would uh, uh, cash in the dollars from gold because Vietnam, uh, Laos, and Cambodia were all part of French Indochina. The banks there were all French. So uh, the army had to use French banks that would send these dollars spent by the military uh, back to the uh, head office in uh, Paris. And uh, uh, de Gaulle would then uh, immediately cash in the dollar inflows uh, into gold. So we, w- we were forecasting exactly at what point uh, the United States would have to close the gold window. The, the United States was selling gold on the London Gold Exchange to keep the price down to $35 an ounce because it, uh, it had said the U.S. dollar is as good as gold, and by keeping the U.S. dollar tied to gold, that kept... Uh, basically a hard money uh, position. It prevented other countries from financing uh, their own uh, economies with their own money and tied them to, it limited uh, their international spending to their access to dollars uh, or to gold. And the United States feared uh, losing uh, this connection with gold because then it couldn't uh, create an artificial uh, limit to other countries' spending and other countries might not be subject to poverty. And the objective is, was to impoverish uh, as many of your trading partners as possible so that you could uh, invest and take over their uh, industry and uh, their public domain. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. We're listening to a July 22nd interview with financial economist and historian Michael Hudson, conducted while he was in Winnipeg for the 14th Forum of the World Association for Political Economy. Here's more of that conversation. Now, we've seen, of course, the rise of China and the Chinese economy, which has followed, fo- followed a very a different path to its, uh, you know, it, its current status. So... I wonder if you could maybe point to what the the key ingredients there were there that enabled it to the point where it's you know situated to you know perhaps overcome the United States as a economic power. I'm not sure what you mean when you say they followed a different path. China's following the identical path to the United States in the late uh, 19th century. Uh, After the Civil War, uh, the uh, uh, Republican Party governed the United States. It was a protectionist party. Uh, It developed uh, American infrastructure, public infrastructure, as what it called a fourth factor of production alongside Uh, land, labor, and capital, you had public infrastructure. But the role of public uh, government investment in uh, railroads and transportation and public health and education uh, was not to make a profit unlike uh, private investment. It was to uh, lower the cost of living and therefore lower the cost of doing business by lowering the break-even price of labor uh, and uh, enable American uh, industrialists uh, to 
employ a labor force that had its education paid for by the government, that had the transportation provided freely and, or on a subsidized basis, uh, that was healthy, uh, that uh, agriculture that had agricultural extension services and support and government marketing services. Uh, so America became a mixed economy. Uh, certainly not a socialist economy, but uh, with very active uh, government uh, support of the private sector to uh, increase the uh, profitability of the private sector by uh, essentially taxing uh, unearned income, ta uh, taxing the uh, uh, basically rentier income, rent and interest. When the uh, income tax was introduced to the United States in 1913 uh, by Woodrow Wilson, uh, only 1% of Americans had to pay the income tax. Only the wealthy Americans had to pay, and the wealthy Americans were the property owners who got almost, whose uh, income consisted almost entirely of uh, interest, finance, dividends, and uh, land rent. Uh, and so, in effect, uh, America was taxing the unproductive rentiers, uh, the people, the, the classes that ruled Europe uh, and avoided taxation in Europe, uh, and it subsidized industry, and that's why uh, America was able to subsidize its industry to uh, overtake uh, that of England. Well, China's doing exactly the same thing, uh, uh, except it's doing it in a socialist way. It's uh, developing a public infrastructure, public transportation, free education, uh, in, and because it provides its population with so many public services, it's not necessary for employers to pay uh, uh, em their employees uh, enough to cover the cost of student debts. Their employees don't have to earn enough to pay student debts. They don't have to earn enough to pay uh, the average rental in Manhattan, uh, uh, I live in New York, is $4,500 a month. Well, you can imagine that uh, rents are much cheaper in China. Uh, the Ameri the uh, American is now deindustrialized by uh, turning into a, a financialized economy run by the finance, insurance, and real estate fire sector. Uh, China has been able to avoid that primarily. So it's been able to avoid the post-industrialization policy of the United States by following the original industrialization policy, and obviously it works. It's the antithesis of free trade. It's the antithesis of neoliberal uh, neoliberalism. Uh, China is not, uh, and the banking especially, is in the public domain. In the United States, if a, a corporation uh, uh, borrows money, uh, uh, to pay higher dividends or borrows money to buy its own stock or simply uh, uses its earnings to uh, buy its own stock and push up the price instead of investing, uh, well, sooner or later, this uh, corporation is going to go bankrupt. And in such cases uh, like Sears, Roebuck, for instance, uh, uh, the, the corporation is bought up by a hedge fund that then loots it all the more uh, and uh, takes all the assets, spins them off, sm uh, essentially uh, break up cost, and uh, uh, leaves an empty uh, financial shell. Well, China's uh, credit to corporations is provided by the Bank of China. And if a corporation can't pay, can't pay, China doesn't say, well, you're going to have to fire all of your employees, you're going to have to downsize and uh, sell off, I guess, to whoever wants to buy it. China will say, okay, we're forgiving the debt. 
so China does not uh, uh, impose uh, debt peonage on uh, either its population or on its corporate sector because the government is the creditor, not the private banking systems. Uh, that's the big difference uh, between Chinese development. Uh, it, it, it is free of the uh, sort of financial suicide uh, that the United States and Europe are imposing on themselves because uh, the financial uh, uh, sector, the banks and the brokerage houses, uh, finance most of the election campaigns uh, in, the, in the United States. And uh, the U.S. Uh, Treasury or uh, Foreign Office uh, finances many of the election campaigns in Europe, mm. presumably Canada, too. Well, speaking of Canada... Um Canada has a publicly owned central bank, the Bank of Canada, which was in existence from uh, mid-30s to 19... Well, what was being used to finance a lot of these same sorts of projects, you know, public infrastructure, public programs, infrastructure and whatnot. And for whatever reason, in, in the 1970s, they, they abandoned that use of the Bank of Canada and, uh, you know, embraced monetarism. And, and now we, we find ourselves in the situation where we're buying, borrowing from private banks at high rates of interest, or have been, and we've seen the deficit skyrocketing. You've been an advisor to the Canadian uh, government uh, in the 1970s. What insights do you have into why Canada pursued the path it did as opposed to the path we see China pursuing? Uh, it was a very clear path, uh, and the, uh, the reason for the changing of the Bank of England was uh, the banking influence. Uh, my, uh, when I was advisor to the government, I published uh, uh, the, the government made a last-ditch effort to oppose the banking interest and uh, published my uh, uh, pamphlet on Canada and the new monetary order. Uh, at that, in, uh, that was done in 1978 and 79. At that time. Uh, since the Bank of Canada was not simply printing the money to enable the provinces, such as Manitoba, to uh, uh, under build their public infrastructure, uh, they had to borrow. And the question is, who are they going to borrow from and at what interest rates? Uh, domestic Canadian interest rates were very high because uh, there were uh, there's a monopoly of banks here uh, that control the interest rates. It was maybe 5%, 6%. But uh, the provinces were advised by the banks to borrow uh, German marks and Swiss francs at only maybe 2%, 2.5%. And said, and said, look, you can uh, pay much lower interest uh, on uh, your borrowing, even though uh, the Canadian government isn't printing the money so you can get it for free, at least you can get a low interest rate. Well, uh, they, uh, the banks made enormous underwriting fees in uh, advising Manitoba and Ontario and other provinces, uh, Alberta, uh, to borrow abroad uh, to arrange Swiss and German loans. Well, uh, my point is, what ha uh, uh, my uh, uh, I went around uh, Ottawa and Toronto and Montreal uh, with the following argument: when a province like Manitoba will borrow, say, uh, $100 million from Germany. What happens? Uh, the German investors will uh, buy bonds for 100 million marks. The, uh, these, uh, the, uh, these marks will be put uh, sent to the uh, Bank of Canada, and 
translated into Canadian dollars to, because Manitoba uh, and the other provinces spend, if they're going to build infrastructure, they spend their money in Canadian dollars. They pay their labor in Canadian dollars. They pay for the raw materials in Canadian dollars. Uh, and so uh, the, uh, Bank of Can the uh, Bank of Canada will now have in its foreign reserves $100 million of uh, foreign currency, German marks, uh, and the Canadian provinces will have a debt of $100 uh, million germ uh, dollars denominated in German marks. Well, there's no, I said, if in, in either case, uh, the Canadian central bank has to simply print the money. It has to print the $100 million in Canadian dollars for you to spend. Why do you need the uh, Germans uh, or the Swiss to lend you money if all the money is going to be printed by the Bank of Canada? Well, the bankers uh, said, and they actually claimed this, they said, we're the honest broker. We know much more than the government because we're the private sector. And as you all know, the government is, uh, in Canada is thoroughly corrupt, uh, uh, especially the Liberal Party uh, at that time. And uh, they said, uh, uh, the, we know that the government is so corrupt in Canada and it's so stupid uh, that we pay very high prices to uh, uh, advisors to give good advice. And uh, if uh, the government prints the money, it's inflationary. Uh, but if we tell the government where to print the money, then it's not inflationary. Uh, and I said, this is uh, absolute uh, nonsense. And in fact, you're taking a risk. Well, uh, at the time I wrote the book, I think the Canadian dollar was something like a uh, dollar six, uh, six in U.S. terms. It then began to plunge uh, down to 80 cents. Now, just imagine if the Canadian dollar goes down to 80 cents, it has to p still pay back marks. Uh, the, a mark increases from uh, by all of a sudden 30%. So the actual interest rate that Canada ended up paying was 10 to 15% a year, uh, and, it ac uh, and that doesn't count the enormous fees that it paid uh, the bank. So what they, uh, uh, what they claimed was intelligent private advice was uh, very bad advice, and uh, they said, uh, I talked to the banks, and it was obvious they have one way to make sure that their claim that governments are stupid and private people are bad, and that is uh, telling the government only appoint stupid people to the banking system or and have people that are drawn from us, the banking sector, whose loyalty is to their head offices. And the Canadians didn't realize that uh, this uh, private enterprise philosophy is simply a self-serving patter talk uh, by the banks to uh, try to uh, uh, get Canada to follow a self-destructive policy that has impoverished the provinces uh, and made them pay needless amounts. Uh, on, but while the provinces have been impoverished, the banks made an enormous underwriting fees uh, in all of these uh, bond issues. Uh, the banks even called in a Jesuit uh, priest who said, uh, if the government uh, decides where to lend money to the provinces, that way leads to the gas chambers. He said, that's Nazism, that's fascism. And uh, 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 the, the bank said, that, that's right. Uh, any uh, to have a strong government is fascist. Uh, you need uh, us, the private sector. What they didn't realize is that sent, uh, uh, Canada, before uh, 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 the Bank of England, uh, 
the ba uh, Bank of Canada was closed down, was very more or less decentralized. It was uh, in World War II, C.D. Howe centralized Canada uh, ma uh, in uh, government in Ontario at the expense of its uh, provinces. But uh, Canada is now a centrally planned economy. The economy is planned by the banks and by the U.S. State Department. Uh, and the pretense is that if uh, the planners are in the private sector, it's not a planned economy. But that's crazy. The, the banks lobby for the government. They pay for the election campaigns. They outright bribe the government. And if they don't do the bribery because that's illegal, they have the U.S. State Department and the U.S. banks uh, do the bribery. So I've been told by the U.S. Treasury officials. So uh, Canada, uh, the Canadian people, unfortunately, uh, are deprived of uh, honest representation of uh, provincial uh, desires and uh, provincial needs uh, by the fact that the financial sector, the banks, uh, are pretty much running the country. Getting to, to your, uh, your, your, your talk about the, uh, the major alignments that, uh, that other countries can uh, align with against this uh, U.S.-imposed financial aggression, uh, I, I, I question that, uh, you know, what, what would you say to those individuals who might say, well, you know, are, are you just, you know, given that China is, is such a powerful country in its own right, that alignments with China might just be um, where, where, where China is potentially ex exploitive, and you know, just as the United States is exploitive, but maybe a, not as um, a nasty an exploiter. I mean, are we talking about a fundamentally different alignment to protect from, like while we're protecting from financial aggression from the United States, are, are we are making themselves vulnerable to Chinese exploitation? The question isn't really whether you're going to follow America or China, but what kind of uh, economy are you going to create? Are you going to create an American-style, uh, European-style economy that is shrinking, that is uh, struggling with debt, uh, that the financial sector has uh, driven the rest of the economy further and further into debt uh, and is essentially making your economy debt-ridden and unproductive and uh, high cost uh, uh, of housing? Or are you going to follow uh, uh, the policy that right now China is leading uh, of uh, uh, that Canada uh, was following before 1974 of having the government create the money, not uh, borrowing the money from the private sector, uh, that uh, when the government creates the money, it's for tangible public investment and useful investment, not uh, simply to inflate housing prices or uh, fund corporate takeovers or pay for financialization. Uh, the Canadian banks have lent an uh, increasing amount of money to all the big Canadian corporations, especially the airlines. If you look at Canadian airlines, uh, they, they've become in, uh, increasingly debt 
burdened, and that's increased uh, their cost of doing business. And uh, they've had to cut back their efficiency, cut back their spending, cut back costs, and uh, are falling uh, way below the quality that they had uh, 40 years ago uh, when I was going back and forth uh, to Canada. So it, it's not China versus the U.S. It's uh, whether you want a Thatcherite neoliberal policy that's going to impoverish you and uh, lead your corporations bankrupt and let the United States uh, exploit you again and again in the, from the uh, auto pact agreement uh, in the 70s uh, down the, uh, through NAFTA, or are you going to uh, act in your own economic self-interest. You don't have to join China to act in your economic self-interest. You don't have to join China to uh, return to uh, Bank of Canada like it used to be to free yourself from the banks. You don't have to uh, join China to have a tax policy uh, that lowers the price of housing by imposing uh, a ground rent, a basic uh, uh, rent of location, so that uh, all of the rent won't be paid to the banks uh, as interest. Uh, you, you can lower the cost of business uh, by deleveraging uh, the economy. So uh, it's, it's just uh, they're trying to frighten you when they're trying to talk about the yellow peril uh, of uh, uh, dependency on China. It's, it's, what really it is is not a war of America against China. It's a war of uh, do you want feudalism uh, and debt peonage or do you want to uh, economic survival? In the U.S., I mean, they, it seems as if they if somewhat painted themselves into a, a corner. I mean, there's no chance of them developing the, the kind of more, uh, you know, industrial-based economy as opposed to the financialization uh, capital that uh, we've seen. And uh, But, you know, that being said, I mean, we do see movements within the United States that are trying to push for a more progressive, uh, you know, focusing on... Uh, you might call it like New Deal type policies, even a Green New Deal. Um, and they they seem to be rallying around certain candidates. I mean, Bernie Sanders in the last election is a very uh, famous example. It seems like we're seeing it again with this next round of Democratic candidates. I know that you uh, were an advisor to a Democratic candidate, uh, uh, Dennis Kucinich, uh, about 15 years ago. Could you talk about lessons you learned from that campaign, what you saw, what you heard, that gives some sense of the pressures that these candidates are under and, and what, what is possible and given the current political dynamics. Well, the problem is the American political system that's very different from uh, the parliamentary system of Canada and Europe. Uh, and if the, uh, this were Europe uh, or Canada, uh, the progressive uh, forces in the United States could simply form a progressive party. Uh, they could call it the Socialist Party or, uh, or whatever they wanted to, but they could form a party. And uh, immediately you would have uh, the uh, mainstream of the Democratic Party, uh, the Hillary Clinton, Obama right wing that uh, is controlled by the donor class on Wall Street, uh, that would fall to about 8%, which is the uh, level to which the German Social Democratic Party has fallen uh, and other Social Democratic parties that are right wing parties uh, in Europe. Uh, but in the way the United States has been set up, uh, there can only be two parties. Uh, Bernie Sanders, for instance, uh, thought, who is a socialist, thought of uh, running as a third party. But he, it was very clear, uh, his lawyers made uh, clear, that uh, the 
a difficulty of getting onto a ballot, even to run for president, uh, is so difficult, especially since Ross Perot uh, uh, ran, tried to run as a third-party candidate, that uh, it's, it's not possible to be elected and to have a congressional following to uh, support uh, 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 the laws that you'd want to put through. So the only uh, access to policy and lawmaking in the United States is either the Republican or a Democratic Party. Now, many left, even though the Democratic Party is the right-wing party in the United States, uh, it, its role is to uh, essentially protect the Republicans from any left-wing criticism by sort of following it further and further and further to the right, claiming that, well, we're not as far to the right as there are, we're closer to the center, hoping to get the centrist votes. Uh, Hillary Clinton called that triangulation, uh, although it's just really moving to the right. Uh, the, the problem is the only way that you can gain control of the Democratic Party is to make sure, uh, is not to run a third party candidate, but the equivalent is simply not to vote. Uh, the, uh, there's been a, uh, a feeling uh, on the left in the United States that uh, the, you have to have uh, the, the Democrats lose again and again and again to show them that they cannot win any election until you get rid of the Democratic National Committee, which is a private, uh, legally defined as a private club. The Democratic, under the American laws, the Democratic National Committee a smoke-filled room that selects the president does not have to follow the votes at all. The, uh, the primary votes where you uh, vote uh, the, in every state for uh, who you would like to be president uh, and other officials are only indicative in the United States. You don't have to follow them. And uh, they have a whole group of uh, the main uh, donors, uh, the representatives of Wall Street, the financial interests, the insurance industry, uh, all uh, outweighing the votes of uh, the popular people. So uh, there, uh, obviously, uh, the left-wingers, uh, uh, such as Bernie Sanders, uh, want to uh, run for president uh, as a kind of educational campaign to make their policy clear to the people, but they know that there uh, is no way in which the ruling class uh, will let them uh, win. And uh, it's been very clear. If they did win, they would be assassinated very quickly. Uh, every, uh, uh, I've been told that by presidential candidates. The threat is, you know, you'll never be president. Uh, we have ways of keeping you out. Uh, and if, should you succeed, we'll do to you what the Romans did to every advocate of uh, democracy, century after century, assassination. So uh, all that uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, his uh, followers can do is outline a program and then uh, expect their followers to stay home. So we're going to have Donald Trump uh, probably elected over uh, very strongly in the next election because uh, the right wing of the Democratic Party is going to support a right wing candidate that uh, is almost as bad as Obama. Uh, it will be someone like uh, they would like to have Biden, who is uh, represents uh, the state of Delaware. And in America, Delaware is a state where most corporations are, uh, uh, are located for legal reasons because the laws are so pro-corporate and anti-reform. Or uh, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, Hillary uh, Backer, uh, uh, 
and or uh, a right-wing neoliberal such as Mayor Buttigieg, of, uh, who's been pushed by uh, the people who were financing uh, Biden and the Wall Street interests. So you're going to have a heavily financed Wall Street candidate against uh, a candi uh, reform candidates. And uh, the reformers certainly don't have a chance in next year's election. They probably won't in 2024. Uh, we're talking about decades of poverty, and uh, the United States will probably remain uh, in the post-Obama depression that it's been in since uh, 2008, where uh, all of the growth, the little growth that there has been in America's GDP, all the growth has accrued to only the richest 5% of the population. For 95% of the American population, the GDP has been declining, and that is probably going to continue uh, under uh, Trump. Uh, he's following a... Uh, a policy of antagonizing the rest of the world. Uh, I would expect that he would probably win the Nobel Peace Prize sometime around uh, 2022 uh, for integrating, driving the whole world together, integrating the whole world uh, into a common front uh, against American uh, aggression. That's why uh, foreign countries uh, uh, seem to be uh, 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 applauding him. <laughs> Well, it seems to that, that like both Democrats and Republicans have driven China and Russia together currently, so that's a, a pretty significant step. But I guess maybe my my last question then is: uh, Are we looking at an inevitable collapse of, as with Rome, an inevitable collapse of of the U.S. system with uh, with the the China and the other aligned countries just sort of taking off by default, or? Do you see any prospect, I mean, this being the anniversary of the Winnipeg general strike, that, that popular movements within the, within the United States and uh, you know, perhaps Canada could somehow soften the blow or, or, or redirect it in a more positive direction? I don't see any popular movement yet. Uh, it's very, you can very easily see why collapse is inevitable. All you have to do is look at the rising debt, uh, personal debt, the rising corporate debt, the rising provincial or state debt, uh, and it's growing exponentially. And uh, exponential, every interest rate is a doubling time at a certain a point. Uh, the rule of 72, you simply uh, divide uh, 72 by the interest rate and you get the number of years in which the debt is doubling. Canada's debt, is personal debt, is doubling very fast. Uh, the government is uh, keeping the debt in place uh, in the U.S., Europe and uh, Canada by low interest rates, so the interest rate charges uh, are very low, but the debt keeps rising and absorbing and diverting more and more income, so people, Canadians have less and less to buy goods and services that uh, Canada produces after they pay their uh, rising housing costs, after they pay their bank debt, after they pay uh, their monthly nut uh, to the utilities. Uh, everybody, I'm sure, uh, knows from their own experience that they have less and less to pay for goods and services, and uh, uh, that is going to uh, continue uh, to shrink the economy. There's no way of knowing when uh, there will be a break in the chain of payments. Usually it's a bankruptcy of a big company, very often by fraud, as uh, the 2008 crisis was uh, bank uh, mortgage fraud. Uh, 
you don't know when people will fight back. Often, surprisingly, they only fight back when things are getting better. But things uh, still have a way to go to get much worse in Canada, much worse in the United States. So I don't see any uh, possibility of reform uh, within the next uh, four to eight years. Well, um, Michael Hudson, I, I really appreciate your, uh, you know, sharing uh, and availing us of your uh, understanding, of a unique understanding of these uh, major developments in the international financial system. Uh, you know, thank you very much for well, your time. Good to be here. Thank you for, for having me. We just heard an interview with prominent U.S. critical economist, historian, and author Michael Hudson. A transcript of this conversation is available at the website globalresearch.ca under the title. The World Financial Order, an Instrument of the U.S. Empire. You can find more of Dr. Hudson's my writings on his site, michael-hudson.com. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download our program from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week. Global Research News Hour.